If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine, booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. All this talk about the Canadian healthcare system by our federal government? What? Has Christmas come early? Or have they been struck by lightning? Oh, oh. Here's Thompson. There you go. You're bare naked ladies and Christmas. I know what you're saying. Scott, it's only October. What the hell are you doing playing the Christmas stuff? Then Will informs me, Will Weber on the board today, it's 12 days till Christmas. We're officially starting the 12 days to, uh, of Christmas, so therefore, obviously, uh, Will's decided to just move right into the uh, the Christmas carol sector of, of, of the musical selection. So there we have it, 12 days. To, can you believe that? Where has this gone? Uh, and But you know what? Listen to this. Gentle reminder and a shove, 900CHML.com, 900CHML.com. All the details and how you can help us help the kids with the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, it's three cent a liter Wednesday at all Pioneer locations in the area. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on with the people from Pioneer. Uh, but absolutely, uh, every liter you buy, three cents of that liter goes to the CHML Children's Fund, one of the many ways you can help us help the kids uh, this holiday season. The toy drive, all still in full swing. Uh, you can uh, donate uh, via texting and such. Uh, there's Text the word donate to 30333. Uh, lots of ways to help us help the kids this Christmas season with the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign in full swing and all the details waiting for you at 900CHML.com. Tomorrow, three cents a liter day at uh, Pioneer location. So uh, drive around until you're on fumes tonight and then push it in tomorrow and off you go. All right. So uh, another jam-packed show. Lots going on. A lot of follow-up to stuff that uh, we were talking about um, uh, yesterday, but as Kurt alluded to in his intro, which was so eloquently written, I might add, um, that uh, Jugmeet Singh all over healthcare now. All over healthcare now, to the point where uh, I was reading a commentary by Thomas Malcare, former liberal, liberal uh, uh, sorry, former leader of the uh, federal NDP, and he said he thinks 2023 is going to be an election year. So there you go. And this uh, is this Jugmeet Singh getting up on the wheel and uh, trying to, because at the end of the day, the Liberals will take credit for dental care, so is this going to be bringing down the government? Uh, does uh, Justin Trudeau want to let someone else bring it down or call the election himself? So uh, we asked yesterday why, you know, what woke Jugmeet Singh up and why he's all of a sudden now starting to talk about our failing health care system, and it's because perhaps there is a um, there is an election on the horizon in the next year or so. So there you go. They're ramping up uh, ramping up the conversation. All right, uh, what else we got, uh, got going on? Uh, military misconduct um, uh, report is in. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Oh, also, World Cupper is the semifinals start today. Croatia and Argentina, uh, Morocco and France tomorrow. And also, the big story uh, was nucle- is about nuclear fusion. I have no idea what it means. I have, all I know is it's like the sun. And that if you add uh, two atoms together, it expands and grows, 
without having to uh, 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 give off anything else, any waste. So uh, much like the sun continues uh, every day, thank goodness, uh, this does. So I guess they've figured out how to harness all of this. Let's listen to this report from Associated Press' Jennifer King. Scientists at the National Ignition Facility achieved fusion ignition. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm joined scientists and officials at a news conference to mark the historic breakthrough that could pave the way for advancements in national defense and the future of clean power. It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory. Scientists used 192 lasers focused on a target about the size of a peppercorn. Marvin Adams with the National Nuclear Security Administration explained how this time was different. The fusion fuel stayed hot enough, dense enough, and round enough for long enough that it ignited and it produced more energies than the lasers had deposited. Kim Budell is the director of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. She says the advance paves the way for more discoveries. Jennifer King, Washington. So, how's that? The plans. Uh, Will says there's nothing new here. He's been working on this stuff at the transmitter site for uh, for years now. So, <laughs> Will's uh, Will's on top of all of this. Got his own little thing going on. Uh, yeah, this is. What does it mean? I have no idea. Uh, but it does. Uh, no, in in very basic terms, I guess it's two atoms coming together and making something larger uh, without e- expending any uh, waste kind of like I'm doing right here. And, and you know, you can see how this would be, well, look at the sun. You know, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, we're all trying to harness nature in some way. And basically what you're doing is replicating what the sun is giving you. So if you can actually create what the heck it is that's making the sun do what it does in this big fireball uh, up in the sky, then you can see where this is going. However, don't get too excited uh, yet. We will probably be uh, all be dead by the time this is uh, in any sort of practical application. Uh, as they said, it is um, still very much decades away. But. That being said, uh, extremely groundbreaking that they have uh, they've created this nuclear fusion uh, inside a laboratory and um, and everybody's still here to talk about it. So uh, where this goes uh, moving forward, who knows? I'm sure this will continue and uh, this will mean more research dollars as uh, obviously. Uh, you know, we're thinking of what we have now as the way of the future. And, you know, I, re- I remember saying at the beginning of all of this, uh, you know, especially when the, the global pandemic sort of uh, emphasized the needs and wants that we have. You know, we've been talking about solar. Uh, we've been talking about uh, battery, EVs, even hydrogen for like 30, 40 years now. And I mean, we've made gains uh, in the sense that we've made it uh, less expensive and, and more efficient and such. But there still really isn't any big thing yet that is new that we really already haven't figured out. Maybe this will lead to that uh, in another lifetime. Fascinating stuff. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And we'll go into space and talk about a media shower just next. All right. Uh, talking about uh, just earlier on nuclear fusion, we'll get more into that a little later on. But uh, since we're out of this world uh let's keep looking up because there is a uh, pretty cool media shower going on over the next night or so and to talk more about all of this dr elena hyde is with us director alan carswell observatory department of physics and astronomy york university and is with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well 
Yes, it is, in fact, a, a wonderful time to be um, in astronomy and looking up and uh, just around. There's so many interesting things happening, as you said. Um, and even just today, we have the Gemini's meteor shower uh, peaking tonight. So uh, before we get to the media shower, and I know this is not your uh, uh, line of expertise at all, but obviously chatter today about be able, be able, being able to create nuclear fusion uh, in a lab, uh, you know, from a science perspective, and I know this is not even your, your area of, uh, of study, but what are your thoughts? What sort, of, um, what sort of resonance does this have? How significant is it? Well, it, it is interesting, but it's worth remembering that this is part of a very, very, very long uh, process that's been going on. So, um, you know, ever since we realized that fusion was powering the sun, our star, and it was an incredibly efficient way of generating energy, we were wondering, can we use this here on Earth? And Fusion has been achieved um, in uh, uh, early hydrogen bombs, but it's not controllable. If you have ever mm. thought about a bomb, it just it goes off, it explodes. You can't control that reaction. So since the 1930s and 1940s, um, we have been wondering, is there a way to control nuclear fusion so that we can extract energy from it? Because it's a really, really challenging process you need incredibly high temperatures and pressures because we can't replicate our sun. Our sun is incredibly massive, far more mm. massive than everything on the Earth and all of the other planets as well. So we can't replicate the mass that makes fusion possible in the sun. So we have to try to replicate fusion with incredibly strong magnetic fields, and it has been a long, long journey um, to create a fusion reaction that wasn't just an explosion. And having that work now is really, really cool, but it's just the first step to actually making uh, fusion energy potentially usable someday. And you bring up a valid point here, Elena, is that this has been a, an, an incredibly long journey to even get to this point, um, which is fascinating because many of us are reading this now and thinking, wow, isn't this great? But this has been something that they've been working on for a long time. All right, let's talk about what's going on in the skies tonight and, and what the conditions are uh, to possibly see something. Yeah, so this is really fun because this is something you can definitely see that is happening tonight in uh the in ontario and actually anywhere you can see the constellation gemini so this is the geminids meteor shower and it does happen every year um this year it's peaking on uh so tonight around midnight between december 13th and 14th you look sort of towards the the northeast uh, if you're in the toronto area you'll see the constellation gemini and you'll see that um, sort of shooting stars appear to radiate out of that position. And this meteor shower is considered to be one of the most spectacular. So if you've got clear skies, and honestly, I'm really happy you have me on because this is the one of the times that I'm able to say the weather looks pretty good in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's an unusual thing to say in December. So I really recommend everyone go out and have a look uppity because the Gemini's meteor shower should be pretty nice, and it is a little bit late. 
but towards the northeast. Um, and this is an this is actually a really cool meteor shower as well because it's um it's an asteroid that causes these uh, meteors rather than a comet, which is makes it a, a little bit unusual. Um, lots and lots of fun. You can spot shooting stars. You can look up and see if you see any any bolides or bright ones go by. Uh, should be a great time. Just you know, bring a warm coat. Uh, that was my next question: was what is this that we are looking at? But this is an asteroid. Yeah. So there is an asteroid that. Uh, so if you if you can imagine, the Earth goes around the sun in pretty much a circle. Well, it's slightly different from a circular orbit, but there's other stuff in the area. And so there are some asteroids that sort of go across the orbit of Earth. It's sort of like a car is changing lanes on the highway. And there's um, some asteroids, sort of near-Earth asteroids, that kind of hang out around our area. This particular asteroid has a, an astronomical name, which is the 3200 Phaethon. So that might not mean anything to you, but it's driving around in its orbit. And it sort of cuts across the lane in front of us, and it leaves behind a bunch of rocky bits. And those rocky bits hit our atmosphere and create the beautiful light show. So um, it is categorized as a potentially hazardous asteroid, but it's not dangerous. So don't worry. Um, its orbit has been mapped out for something like 400 years. It's definitely mm. not going to collide with us. But the little pieces of de- rocky debris that fall off of this asteroid that's what hits our atmosphere and because of where it is in our orbit it appears to come from the constellation gemini around this time of year all right so tonight around midnight northeast sky take a look up and you could see the geminid meteor shower uh taking place tonight dr elena hyde with us director alan carswell observatory department of physics and astronomy at york university elena always fun thanks for the time be well Absolutely. Once again, another another wonderful reason to look up at E. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Mothers, grandmothers, and leaders in our community wrote a scathing letter indicting this government and this prime minister's lack of action in dealing with the health care crisis, particularly as it refers to children. Children can't breathe. They're ending up in emergency rooms that are full, waiting hours and hours to get care. And the prime minister hasn't shown up and shown leadership. For parents, the health of their kids is the number one priority. Why isn't it for the prime minister? Here, here. Why isn't it for the leader of the NDP? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh um, just out of nowhere starts uh, rolling out the nurses and the parents as if we haven't seen any of this for the last three years and giving giving us an examples of of a a healthcare system under uh, under uh, siege under just you know collapsing due to exhaustion and such and um and now we see uh the leader of the NDP speaking out as if it's a brand new problem i mean it's something that the provinces have been screaming about i mean there was a, another conference just a week ago go uh, on this and we remember when during the height of the pandemic uh, bc premier uh horgan uh brought this up with the with the premiers as well in 
that NDP province. So uh, rumor has it there's elections, uh, uh, the wind of an election floating around in the next year. Christia Freeland also came out last week uh, speaking of how uh, families are frightened over the Canadian health care system and the way it is collapsing, not only under uh, COVID-19, but also now under the strains of uh, flu and the respiratory illnesses that are affecting the young people. For three years, we've been talking about it. Has the conversation finally changed? Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley. I've asked him this question a bazillion times. Practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. Are you noticing a change of tone this week? Uh, finally, federal politicians seem to be listening. How, what's your take on this? Why now? Well, Mr. Singh has changed his tone for sure, and kudos to him. You know, you said there's only finally noticing the crisis now, but we've got to give him kudos. Hey, I'm any time a politician makes health care a major media event, I'm excited about it. Having said that, having said that, as we all know, Section 92 of the Constitution Act puts the federal government off of health care issues. Section, section 91, rather. Section 92 is has health care as part of the provincial mandate. And so here again we have the feds making Section 92, which is the provincial business, into a federal issue. And I can't help wondering, and again, this is more your area than mine, but it certainly smells political to me, and I, and I hope that's not the only thing driving this. Uh, that's always uh, seems to be an excuse or a reason for cloudiness whenever this issue comes up uh, with the federal government, that it's a provincial issue, but so is dental care and so is daycare. And those have become two major issues where new programs have been installed by the federal government. So what's yeah. the difference here? I mean, um, are, are you confident we may see, as you said, at least people talking about this now? Well, uh, Carolyn Tui actually wrote a great book a number of years ago called Accidental Logics, and she describes how things change in healthcare in a big way, less as respect of logic or, or thoughtful process, but more due to accident. You know, if the stars align and the political pressure works out the way it is, and a government, you know, is, is facing an election it really doesn't want to have, all of a sudden money comes out and all of a sudden solutions come out. So we may be seeing something like this. I'd be surprised, though, because the the hole that we've dug ourselves into, we had problems with healthcare care pre-COVID. COVID mm-hmm. just made them way worse. We delayed yeah. all these surgeries. We delayed all these uh, investigations. And we really have no resilience in the system to dig ourselves out of that hole. And that's what's being asked right now. That's what Mr. Singh is saying. He's saying, hey, Mr. PM, you need to help the provinces fix this. Kudos for him for saying it, to him for saying it, but I think he's asking for something that no province can deliver. And so it's not just about going from, you know, 22% of total health care funding to 35% like the provinces are asking. Yes, give the provinces more money, fine. But is that going to solve it? I don't think so. And that's what the worry is on everybody's mind. So what is he asking for that the provinces can't deliver? We, again, the big debate about money, money's supposed to help everything, and yet everybody knows how expensive this is system is. So what what is the solution that clearly nobody wants to acknowledge here? 
Well, the the big debate uh, that we're always talking about is funding and control, right? How much money do we have and who gets control? And then the feds talk about strings attached or not. So that's the level of control. In the spring, federal government listed out five-point plan that they wanted delivered, which actually looks like a 15-point plan. But the elephant in the room, and boy... This could just be me talking, but I believe we need to have a discussion about who's in control, who calls the shots. If Mm. everything's going to be managed centrally, if you want a centrally managed healthcare system, then they need to take accountability for its performance. If we're not going to have that, then allow some creative hypothesis testing, which is just a fancy way of saying let local people, local regions, whether it's provinces or municipalities, figure out creative ways to deliver on the needs of the people in their area. I've got a bunch of seniors in my area. We've got a big problem with home care. Let us come up with creative solutions. Don't tie our hands behind our backs. Now, people say that's private financing or whatever. You know what? We should have everything on the table. Let's have a broad-based discussion about every creative way that we could possibly meet the needs of the patients who need care. And that's not happening. We're still stuck in this central management. We're going to figure it out from the center and let's fight about money and accountability. I think it's the wrong discussion to have. Is there, we talked about how uh, you talked about control of the money. Obviously, if, if, if Ottawa is going to give money, they want it spent in a certain way. Uh, that may not jive with the provinces. Is there a way to gauge success without telling people what to do? I mean, and, and I'll use the example of working from home during a global pandemic. Everybody thought, well, they're goofing off, they're goofing off, and it turned out productivity went up. So is there a way to gauge who's goofing off with the money and who isn't as this is happening or is that too late i mean is it is there not is there not a way to tell if the provinces are being successful oh man that is a brilliant question and i'm not just pumping your tires here so you're asking you know what are the kpis what are the key performance indicators on healthcare outcomes and certain types of healthcare, you can get those hard kind of uh, key KPIs. So, uh, and the, the infection rates after surgery, or the you know how long are people waiting to get their joints replaced, or how long are they waiting to get their cataracts uh, uh, done, and that sort of thing. So, for some things, you can tie funding to hard outcomes. The trouble is. So much of healthcare is what the uh, management experts call, refer to as a coping organization. You often can't measure how much care has been delivered in the same way that you can't measure how much education has been delivered when a teacher gives a lesson. And so it, 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 in these difficult-to-manage organizations, public organizations, or, or like a peacekeeper, a police officer, how much peace has been kept? Can we pay the peace officer based on the amount of peace being kept? How do you measure peace? Peace is a metaphysical concept. It's the same with education. It's the same with much of what happens in healthcare. So it's a brilliant question that you asked, but devil, devilishly difficult to answer. Uh, and obviously starts with uh, a discussion where everything is on the table, including the things you do not want to talk about. Oh, absolutely. And I think, number one, it's governance. Who's in control? The feds want to be in control. The provinces want to be in control. The doctors want to be in control. The nurses want more control. Everybody wants to be in control, but no one wants accountability. Until we fix that, we can't get change for patients. Dr. Sean Watley is with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, talking about our national health care crisis. Sean, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, sir. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Scientists announced that they have for the first time produced more energy in a fusion reaction than was used to ignite it. A major breakthrough in the decades-long quest to harness the power that powers, or the process rather, that powers the sun. Uh, researchers at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California achieved the result, which is called net energy gain, said the energy department. Net energy gain has been an elusive goal because fusion happens at such high temperatures and pressures that it is incredibly difficult to control. To simplify all of that, David Novog with us, professor in the Department of Engineering, McMaster University, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Happy to be here. Uh, I understand this has been an incredibly long journey, but how significant is this? Um, how surprised are you, or did you know it was on the horizon? I, I think there's been continuous research in fusion uh, as an energy source since the 1950s. So it's been it's been a long time. And, and over most of my career, the things we're talking about today have always been sort of like a moonshot, something that, you know, you don't expect to achieve. And I think what 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 the United States really achieved here is is a remarkable goal on the way to, you know, establishing fusion as an energy source. Uh, obviously, now it's proven it can be done. Is it practical? They say this is still decades and decades away. Uh, what can you look into the future into your crystal ball? What do you see? Yeah, so the 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 energy released was about the, the units we use as a megajoule of energy. So the units released were about three megajoules of energy and the lasers used to cause that high temperature and high pressure to, to ignite that and, and take make fusion possible, they needed about two megajoules of energy. So if you like, you know, there's kind of like a 50% gain in compared to the laser energy and what mm-hmm. was output from the fusion process. But I, I guess the main cautionary tale here is the energy to run all those lasers and the cooling systems and everything is more like 300 megajoules. Right. So we, we need we need to get outputs that are, uh, you know, much, much higher. And this is really going to be the the engineering phase over the next 10, 20 or 30 years to to get the output of energy to be larger than, you know, that whole infrastructure in Lawrence Livermore is taking. Is this the next big significant event in renewable energy? I mean, you know, we've been dealing with uh, solar, wind, really for a long period of time now, electric vehicles. I mean, we've seen the technology improve, become much more efficient and such. Is this the next big significant event? I think for us as humanity, this is a technology that that we will move towards over you know the distant future i think my 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 in talking with many people today what we have goals on climate change on reducing you know our co2 impacts that are in the very near term so you know we have 2030 goals and Mm -hmm. 2050 goals and fusion as a commercial technology to really assist us in this battle is sort of 2040 or 50 or even beyond yeah. So I, I think we got to keep on course to really examine, you know, all of our uses of, of, of carbon and fossil fuels and make sure that we're using them as effectively as we can. Who will now be interested in this? Uh, does this mean more investment, more industry uh, interest and, and investment in this field? Yeah, I, I think, you know, these experiments are hugely complicated and expensive. You know, only a mm-hmm. few governments in the world can 
can afford the infrastructure that it takes. And, uh, and, and you know, Canada's role is we, we have, uh, you know, almost, a, a, I think, a third or more of the world's supply of the fuels that are used in that fusion process. So I think Canada will be a big player in this technology, maybe not in terms of all these high energy lasers and all the things that it takes on that side. But certainly we are, we are a resource for the, for, the, for the fuels that are needed in that fusion process more so than almost any other country. So I, I think, you know, the future, this is a good development for Canada. And I think there's lots of researchers in that, in that field that are pretty excited to see the news today. Does this change our direction in any way? Or as you mentioned, I mean, there's still, this is still a long ways away. There's still other forms that have to be addressed as we get there, a mixed bag of, of various energy sources and such. Uh, does this change that direction in any way? Instead of going this way, we're now going that way. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, there, there's a concept in engineering that we call the silver bullet. And, and, you know, society and governments and people, they want to believe that there's a magic solution that will, mm. you know, uh, uh, clear us of, of, of the werewolves of the world. Um, but but really, I think we, we have a, a mix of technology, solar, wind, hydro, nuclear that are low carbon. And we know those technologies today, we can deploy them and expand them and utilize them more. And I think that's really the ticket that's got to get us to 2030, 2050. And in parallel, develop that fusion because, you know, 2050 is not that far away. Hmm. We won't have fossil fuels forever on this planet. We won't have uranium resources for fission. There's not enough solar uh, capacity on the planet. We, we need to really look at fusion as as an important part of the long term sustainability of you know us as a whole species on this planet. David Novog with us, professor in the Department of Engineering Physics at McMaster University, talking about uh, breakthrough made today in harnessing uh, the process that powers the sun, uh, nuclear fusion. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. All right. Uh, as we were talking earlier today, I uh, didn't realize it until Will pointed this out, uh, 12 days till Christmas. Have you started yet? Huh? Have you even got the lights up? What are you doing? Uh, yeah, 12 days till Christmas. Hard to believe. So we're directing you to the webpage at 900chml.com. There, all the details on how you can help us help the kids. And uh, there you go. Help us help the kids. And participate in the CHML Children's Fund and the Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. And if Mariah Carey doesn't make you do that, nothing will. Lots of ways for you to help us help the kids. You can drop off a a new toy. You can donate money. Uh, You can text the word donate at 30333. All the details, all the events, everything that goes on through the month of December is on the website at uh, 900chml.com. And, of course, one of the signature events that we do uh, every single year. And uh, with the last 32 years, Pioneer has donated over $500,000 to the CHML Children's Fund. And coming up tomorrow, Wednesday, December 14th, we're telling you to fill your gas tank up at Pioneer Energy, helping us to help the kids. Pioneer's three-cent-a-liter day returns in support of the CHML Children's Fund. As I mentioned, uh, 32 years, 500 grand. And what happens is every Wednesday, or this coming Wednesday, every year, uh, you fill up your tank, three cents from every liter that you pump goes into the CHML. 
CHML Children's Fund. It is um, that easy and proudly Pioneer has been fueling 900 CHML in our 46th annual uh, Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Let's bring in Michael Stevens, Corporate Territory Manager at Pioneer Energy and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, absolutely, Scott. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, and I'm hoping that your tanks are full. You got a delivery today, and we got everything in there that we need for when people start lining up. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you mention it, actually. All the messages went out a couple days ago, so we're prepping, we're excited, we're getting ready to go. Big days upon us. So why does Pioneer decide to do this? I mean, you know, 32 years, they're certainly a signature sponsor with us and, and over 500 grand over the course of this time. How did you guys get involved in this? Why do you do it every year? It started off with it with the Hogarth family, of course, and, you know, it's evolved and Parkland's purchased since, but, you know, it was just that, that community the community and, and it was a wonderful premonition at the time and it's evolved and as you said half a million dollars has come from it but it's really about giving back to those that have been so good to us a lot of these folks have have supported the wonderful business now for you know since 1988 when we got involved with the charity and it's, it's a great opportunity to give back really is. we really appreciate that opportunity how important is it for customers to know that a place they they frequent is contributing? How, how how big a deal is that? How much does that mean to customers? I believe it means a lot, and I think if you look at our numbers year to year, I, I you know we up to twenty thousand, twenty five thousand dollars per year. I mean, you're hundreds of thousands of liters pumped. I the word spreads, and I think people take tremendous pride. And coming in to support it. I mean, what you could not have a better charity or a better cause. I mean, helping families and wonderful children that are just in a little bit of a tough spot right now. I mean, isn't it wonderful to have that chance to help? So I, I think people gain a lot of pride in coming coming in that particular day and filling up, which is tomorrow, of course. And and you know, I mean, bless them. We appreciate. It. And how many locations are involved? It's the Hamilton area, Greater Hamilton area, the Pioneer Energy locations. Yeah, and that's our way to kind of help. So we, we have added sites through the years, Scott. So we're all the way up to 39 locations. So we go right down from the Tiger region down around Lake Erie through the Tilsonburg, Dunvilles, uh, all the way up through Brantford and then back through Hamilton, Ancaster. We've got a couple in Burlington. So we've really covered the Hamilton uh, part of that region. We've now taken it up Brantford and in Burlington. That's the way for us to grow it, is adding locations. We're trying to make it as simple as, as possible and get as many people as possible involved. So we're up to 39 locations. It's great. Is it different this day at the stations? Because obviously people come in every day to pump gas. It's part of the routine. they got to go on. they got to work. they got to do their thing. But is it different this day? Is there a different buzz in the air? There is, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's discussed often. You wouldn't believe how many times it comes up. As you said, I think the community looks forward to the day. And we have a lot of repeat business. You know, we have a very loyal following, and that's a lot of the reasons the charity is such a big success. It's the opportunity to thank those folks that have been so loyal to us. So I do believe it. It it is a special day. I think people really feel great for what they do, and and we can appreciate it more. So that's our way to kind of reciprocate that, uh, that respect back. Wednesday, tomorrow, December 14th, it is Pioneer 3 Cent a Liter Day. They've been doing it for the last 32 years, have donated over $500,000 to the CHML Children's Fund. And, of course, tomorrow you can have an opportunity to do it again where Pioneer will give 3 cents from every liter sold to the CHML Children's Fund. Michael, uh, thank you so much for all you do. Greatly appreciated. Be well. 
Yeah, and you know, so the other thing I'd just like to say quickly is thank you to each and every, every one, every single customer that has supported us. It's not just about tomorrow. You know, past years has meant a tremendous amount. So if you have that opportunity again tomorrow, we appreciate it. But, you know, thank you for all those past visits as well. It means just as much. So thank you, folks. Everybody have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Michael Stevens, Corporate Territory Manager at Pioneer Energy, tomorrow, Wednesday, December 14th, three cent a liter day at participating Pioneer locations. And we thank them very much for that. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, over the last uh, little while, we've been talking, well, if you want to go back the last three years, uh, the challenges for our healthcare system and the overload it has experienced, the exhaustion, the fatigue of simply a healthcare industry that is uh, in need of help and has um, uh, tried to manage its way through a uh, a global pandemic, and now a surge in flu and RSV, which is a uh, respiratory virus, as well as um, what is left of COVID, and this again creates a perfect storm for our hospital system as they try to cope with all of this. Now the city has announced that uh, there will be uh, pop-up flu shot clinics in various locations, including Lime Ridge Mall until December 21st. Uh, McMaster Children's Hospital has opened up a uh, flu COVID-19 cold clinic clinic in the hospital's lobby in order to ease pressure on the emergency department. To talk about uh, where we are, let's bring in Dr. Brendan Liu, Hamilton Public Health Service is resident doctor and with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well hi scott thanks for having me uh, nice to chat with you again so where are we at this point brendan uh in this uh flu season and such and how is it affecting healthcare here in hamilton so we are still seeing a significant amount of circulation of, of all of those respiratory viruses that you mentioned circulating in our community. Uh, at this point in time, we're seeing that COVID-19 transmission in Hamilton is moderate and decreasing, and uh, influenza transmission in Hamilton seems to be moderate and stable. Uh, what this is presenting as is a continued amount of pressure on our healthcare system, and we're seeing that most of all in our children's hospital through the McMaster Children's Hospital. And, and uh, that has manifested in the emergency departments as well as those who have been admitted to the hospital. In terms of seeing updates around uh, the transmission of respiratory viruses in our community, I, I encourage everyone to check out our City of Hamilton website where we post an updated uh, respiratory virus transmission dashboard uh, with some of that information as well as uh, additional indicators. Talk about the clinics that have been set up, Brendan, and what's the objective here? So we are really uh, focusing and emphasizing on encouraging vaccination for both uh, influenza as well as COVID-19 for all those in our community. We're continuing to offer uh, vaccines to community members through our Lime Ridge Mall Clinic until December 21st, as well as through our mobile uh, vaccination sites, which uh, rotate through different uh, community sites on a daily basis. And so those are places where you can book your COVID-19 vaccine, whether that's getting your primary series or making sure that your booster is up to date, uh, or as uh, recently as this past Friday, uh, being able to walk in for an influenza vaccine 
at that Lyme Ridge Mall clinic, as well as our mobile uh, mobile vaccine clinics. Uh, and those, those walk-ins for, for flu shots can be uh, given for anyone over the age of six months. Um, we know that there's a number of other places in the community where people will also be accessing their vaccines and, and flu vaccines are available through primary care, your family doctor, as well as through pharmacies and, and COVID-19 uh, vaccines as well are available in the community through, uh, through pharmacies. And so I encourage folks to check out the City of Hamilton website for up-to-date uh, information about the hours and locations of our clinics and really make sure that uh, everyone is up-to-date on that annual influenza uh, vaccine as well as your COVID-19 uh, vaccines. What about um, messaging in and around kids getting a flu shot? Because I remember, doctor, like in the old days or before COVID-19, you know, the, the, the flu shot was for older Canadians or those that are vulnerable, whatever. And now it seems we're looking for everybody to get the vaccination six months and over, says NASI. Um, is, that message, is, is that messaging getting through that we need kids to be vaccinated against the flu to help ease this uh, threat as well? Absolutely. So we, we encourage everyone over the age of six months to make sure that you get that flu vaccine. But with influenza, what we see is a bit of a, a U-shaped pattern where, where those who are at the highest risk of having severe uh, disease and poor outcomes related to influenza are those who are very, very young under the age of five, as well as those who are older. And so those are those are folks who where it's especially, especially important to get that flu vaccine and get that uh, protection uh, again the respiratory viruses that are circulating, as well as if you're somebody who uh, is around those people who are younger, uh, younger than five years old or around older adults or providing care for any of those people, really important to make sure that you're protecting yourself as well as protecting those around you who might be a bit more vulnerable. Um, why do you think that um, people seemed more inclined to get their COVID shots than they are necessarily a flu shot? We remember as soon as our our age was called, we rolled up our sleeves. Uh, the the take uh, intake rate was was pretty high for people getting vaccinated initially. I think it's waned a bit now with boosters and such. But people were very much you know they couldn't wait to get the shot or they wanted the shot. Not so much energy uh, in regard to that with the flu shot. Why do you think that? That is considering, um, you know, both were putting tremendous strains on healthcare systems and, and people were getting quite sick, you know, one's older and now more so younger. But why do you think it's different? That's, that's a great question. I think uh, the most likely thing is that really COVID is all that we've had a chance to talk about for the past the past two years. And, and with all those protections that we've had for uh, COVID, whether that's wearing masks, whether it's um, avoiding crowded places with, with lots mm-hmm. of people, um, those are things that in addition to protecting us from COVID have really driven down uh, rates of our other respiratory diseases like influenza and RSV for the past couple of years. Uh, what we're seeing now is, is with uh, people having increasing exposures in the community, uh, we're seeing a return of those viruses. That's influenza, RSV, and other other respiratory viruses. And so uh, we haven't really had to worry about influenza uh, in past years as much as we we would have before before COVID. But 
what we're seeing now is really that influenza, RSV, and COVID are, are that uh, triple threat in our community. And we need to make sure that we're layering up with each uh, level of protection that we can. And that's that's really emphasizing a influenza vaccine as well as a, a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, which is certainly important in this respiratory season with uh, all the uh, pressures on the healthcare system that we're seeing and, and making sure that we're keeping those most vulnerable, especially as, as healthy as possible. Only have a few seconds left, doctor. What message would you have for those parents who might be concerned about giving their kids vaccine? So I, I would say that we we know that the influenza vaccine is very effective, at, especially at reducing the risk of very severe outcomes from influenza vac, uh, infection. For those who are at most of, at risk, it can cut your sh- uh, chances of, of requiring hospitalization with the flu by by more than half. Uh, and it's really an important part of the layers of protection that we need to take. That's uh, getting your flu shot if you're above the age of six months, getting your uh, up to date on your COVID vaccines, staying home if you're sick, and and really wearing a mask, especially in those uh, indoor public crowded settings. Dr. Brendan Liu with us, Hamilton Public Health Services resident doctor on where we are in the hammer regarding uh, COVID, RSV, and, uh, of course, the common flu that has come around. Brendan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Canadian healthcare facing a national crisis. That was the observation of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh yesterday. Many surprised uh, that uh, he was rolling out nurses and parents and using all these examples of really everything that we've been seeing for the last three years in regard to a strained healthcare system uh, on the heels of a global pandemic. And you know, you have to ask yourself would these politicians even be talking about fixing Canadian healthcare if? We were not experiencing high levels of the flu and uh, the respiratory virus that is still crippling hospital systems as if we were in the midst of a global pandemic. If we weren't having this issue with the flu increases, would politicians even care? Because up until now, it's really only the provinces that have been barking about this. Uh, going back to the beginning of the uh, uh, pandemic with uh, BC Premier Horgan uh, first bringing this up and then another Premier's conference uh, not too long ago, uh, again, asking for uh, for more help and, and to at least come to the table. Christia Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, also spoke out last week about how concerning this is uh, for families. So the big question is, why now? Is there an election coming? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. Are you surprised, Peter, that we're uh, hearing so much chatter about Canadian health care on the federal level at this point? Because it seems that, you know, this has been going on for, you know, almost three years now, and, and nothing's really has moved forward on this. Are you surprised we're talking about it now? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, I, I go back and think about, you know, federal, provincial, you know, beaking at each other going back into the 1990s, hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, at various points, uh, the pressure is released because they come to some kind of agreement. Um, you know, but in the long run, you have, you know, health costs, which are increasing, you know, slightly faster than inflation. So, you know, any decision that's made in the past, you know, hits a wall. And so, 
in a way, you know, we're we're living the impact of first, uh, you know, Stephen Harper's decision to to reduce the growth level of uh, uh, of these transfers, uh, you know, back uh, about 2014, and then uh, you know Trudeau's decision to more or less continue with uh, with Harper's transfers and agreements with the provinces in 2017, and the provinces said then that you know that's not fast enough, and you're going to create a crisis, uh, and that's pretty much where we are now. I heard that this has gone back as far as the days of Pierre Trudeau when they started pulling back funds from the from the federal from the federal perspective. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it depends where you want to start the story. But you can yeah. certainly started in the early eighties. Uh, it was Trudeau, uh, Mulroney. Uh, you know, was, uh, also limited it. Uh, the big cut really came with Jean Chrétien and his Liberal government in the nineteen ninety five uh, federal budget, where they took about a third of the money that was being sent to the provinces for health care and post-secondary education and, and took that out. Um, so, yeah, it depends where you want to, to, to start the clock uh, on that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the federal government obviously isn't that keen to pay the price politically of taxing Canadians only to take that money and send it to the provinces. And so they're, uh, you know, they're often looking to, uh, you know, reduce uh, or con- at least control uh, the growth of uh, health transfers so that they can spend uh, the money on things where they may get more credit. Uh, clearly, the template is broken, and we see that as the population ages. Uh, and as you mentioned, no matter what the stripe is of the federal government, this is going to have to be dealt with. Uh, do you see this as a turning point now where something hopefully will be done? Yeah, I mean, I think if we see uh, Jagmeet Singh coming out uh, with this, I think he can smell that uh, in the upcoming federal budget that will be coming out end of February, early March, uh, there's likely to be an, an increase in transfers to the provinces. So uh, he can, you know, get out a bit in front of that parade uh, and perhaps claim some credit when, when that comes down the pipe uh, at that point. Uh, uh, so I think, yeah, I mean, there's a sign, too, that the provinces are getting a bit more traction with their demands with more money when we see, you know, situations like at CHEO or, you know, like an Ajax in, in Ontario in the past week with children's hospitals having real, you know, difficulties, uh, you know, and there's similar stories in other provinces um, that, you know, the provinces are getting a bit more traction and the federal government probably does have to come to the table. And we've seen Jean-Yves Duclos, the health minister, saying, yeah, we we want to spend more money, but... We want to get the conditions just right. And, uh, you know, the provinces come back and say, well, no, we don't want any conditions. So, Mm. you know, they're getting into the negotiation stage, presumably to have some kind of deal around budget time. Uh, Tom Mulcair said in a recent piece in the media that he smells an election in 2023. Do you see his heading there? Uh, Not really. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you can't always foresee these things. But to the extent that it's uh, Jagmeet Singh coming out, I'm, I don't get the impression that he really wants an election. I think what he sees in this is an opportunity uh, to remind Canadians that despite the uh, confidence and supply agreement, the NDP isn't the Liberals and continues to, to fight ag- uh, on them, uh, fight against them on some issues that are important to the sort of voters in the Liberal NDP universe that he's after. So I think it's much more posturing uh, to you know get some get some image, but presumably also uh, affect uh, the dynamic of the, these negotiations much more than a desire to to cross a tripwire and call an election. Although it is a dangerous game because, you know, that agreement with the Liberals is no surprises. And I would presume that the Liberals were a bit surprised <laughs> by the announcements yesterday, which, you know, ultimately put pressure on them to go and meet the Premiers.
Peter Griff with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, the feds and the provinces, and how we move forward with health care. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We need to make sure that if anyone in this country has international training in healthcare, they're able to work in that field. We can't afford for them not to be able to work. People who are trained in their fields need to be able to work in their fields. And finally, we need to make sure there's good pay. And the federal government made some commitments. Justin Trudeau made some promises. He should follow through with those promises to make sure people get a good, decent wage. So uh, we've been uh, barking about uh, Canadian health care and, and what the system's going through. It, it's it's fatigue and where it is, the crisis, uh, for three years now during a global pandemic. And now uh, we're, farting, we're, we're starting to hear, whoops, starting to hear um, federal leaders talk about this. It was Christia Freeland the other day talking about how Canadians were frightened. And now Jugmeet Singh. Uh, leader of the NDP is uh, putting pressure on the Prime Minister to get something done. Why is this happening now? Uh, interesting article from former uh, NDP leader Thomas Mulcair saying he smells an election in the next year. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. You made my night. You and my son share the use of that particular F word. Just brought him to hockey and heard a lot of that F word. Scott, so well played. Well, at least it was that one and not the other one. Uh, Anyway, uh, yes, thank you. I digress. Um, So, again, I've been talking about this with uh, doctors and and healthcare people for the last three years. Now we seem uh, to hear more federal attention being placed on healthcare. We remember uh, NDP Premier Horgan doing this at the beginning or middle of the pandemic or so, and it just happened again with the provinces meeting together. Um, why, Why is this happening now? Why are all of a sudden we interested in, in health care? Uh, well, because the public is living in the worst crisis we've probably seen in our you know, active memory when it comes to the state of health care. And every politician is feeling they need to get into the game, Scott. I mean, Mr. Singh's entry is just a another one into the game, and it's all just lip service. I, I, I mean, I don't know what's happening there in, in Hamilton and your area, but I know from here in Ottawa and talking to people at home in Newfoundland, people are basically engaged in a game of survivor, right? They're, mm. If they're sick, they're figuring out ways to get the health care. They hear the claptrap from the politicians, and they see no action, and they've moved on. They're just trying to get care for their family and their family members, and it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. You know, you have to wonder if we weren't going through this uh, crisis we are now post-pandemic with the rise in the flu and the rise, the rise of the respiratory virus and such, if that wasn't happening and crippling our system again, I wonder if we'd even be talking about this. Probably we wouldn't because, you know, we're passive acceptance Canadians. We accept that it's okay to wait hours and hours at an emergency room. We accept that it's okay to... Um, you know, sometimes wait year or longer for tests or year or longer for elective surgery. But now we're seeing, and we accept that we don't have a real discussion about health care. Can we finally discuss the fact that, you know, we need to make some choices in health care? And I don't, I don't mean the whole system of private versus public, but we do have to have a discussion about can, you know, are there alternative forms of private service delivery that can help? But we're complacent. Um, and we get ourselves all worked up. And you know what? The politicians, 
playing the game they've always played. They're going to talk about how concerned they are and how worried they are, and they're going to hope the clock runs out, that we get through the flu season, we get through the latest COVID challenges, and by the time spring comes, that uh, you know we're back to a more normal sort of pace. Uh, many will say that um, you know the feds and the provinces they can't agree on where the money's going, what they're going to do, who's getting credit for it, blah blah blah. We often hear um, you know the feds say that it's a provincial uh, situation, not federal, but so is dental care and so is daycare, and the feds got handsomely involved in that. Well, and indigenous health care is a federal responsibility, and the hmm. federal government, as is medical care for people in our armed services. Um, so, I mean, it's a bit of BS, to be blunt, and mm-hmm. Ottawa writes the checks here, too. So, look, I, I, I do empathize with Ottawa's argument a little bit about you can't be writing uh, blank checks. You should, we, Ottawa should be forced, uh, pushing for some outcomes. I mean, look at the Auditor General's report last week on the issue of the vaccine procurement and the distribution of the vaccine and the fact that it was, I think she concluded it was largely inefficient in some areas because there wasn't data sharing. Like, Mm. can we not share data? That's not giving up provincial sovereignty. Can we move uh, forward with the same buck passing that we've seen in the past? Um, or have have Canadians had enough of that? The reality is the reality. We all know uh, that our healthcare system is in bad shape and it needs some fixing. Can, can politicians avoid that reality or does something have to be done here? Well, they've avoided it. You know, the, the, the public health care in Canada was created in large measure, as you know, by Tommy Douglas, what, over mm-hmm. 50, 60 years ago. The requirements for public health care then were very different than they are today. And we've really not modernized the system very much. So what, you I mean, you know, as is often said, you should not waste a good crisis. But who is going to lead the political charge here? Um, because it's not just check writing. Um, uh, you know, heard, you heard Mr. Singh talk about credentialing. Well, yeah, that's great, Mr. Singh, but you, you control nothing on credentialing. Most credentialing, particularly as it relates to getting people, um, doctors out into the field, is done by provincial medical colleges and is often controlled solely by physicians. So you can whine about that, but are you going to do something about that? You can't. I don't, Many sorry, have I'm said, all worked up on this because it is just, I'm so sick of yeah. politicians just saying, oh, we're working on it. That is a load of malarkey. Uh, isn't there, and they've said, and many have said, you know, nobody wants to touch this because there's no win. It's it's just, it's it's you get dragged down. Isn't there any political gain to be had by fixing this? I think bravery will be rewarded, but nobody, you know, he's the closest person and he's a friend of mine that I can say is being brave is my premier in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, he is a physician. He appointed a physician as his deputy minister uh, to oversee the review of the health care system. He, look, we, we need to change it probably faster than anybody else there, but Beyond Dr. Fury, Premier Fury in Newfoundland and Labrador, I don't see a lot of brave behavior out there. I see a lot of cautious political behavior fighting about tax points and how big the check is going to be. I don't know what that's going to do for anybody.
Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, about the recent chatter about our Canadian healthcare system. Will it advance the discussion? Tim, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. And Scott, avoid the flatulence, okay? I, and enjoy that. Enjoy that with your son in the dressing room, please. You, yeah, just tell him that the guy who was on radio with you is his favorite word. Take care, buddy. Lots of questions around the green belt. Lots of chatter around the green belt. Uh, obviously, we are in need of housing, and the premier said that he wouldn't touch the green belt. Uh, then, of course, started touching it, and the rest is history, as they say. So. Um, how much do we know about the green belt? What is it? How big is it? Um, is um, We'll leave it at that. Let's bring in Liet Vasseur, Professor of Biological Sciences, UNESCO Chair in the Community Sustainability, from local to global, and member of the Brock Environmental Sustainable uh, Sustainability Research Center at Brock University, and is with us now. Liet, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, very well. Thank you. So give us a bit of a lesson on the green belt here. Is this an issue of, you know what, it's off limits, just don't touch, or is this something that needs to be, the strategy needs to be updated for a growing province where we are now? Well, I think, you know, when you think about London, uh, UK, and uh, in England, uh, they have a green belt, which they never touched, even if they have been growing, and uh, it's a very large city. So it, they have been able to find innovative solutions to be able to keep the, the, the green belt. And it's quite important because we're talking about biodiversity. For me, especially here at COP15 in Montreal, uh, where uh, a prime minister uh, you know, is pushing for conservation of biodiversity and trying to increase the number of protected areas, uh, removing the green belt, a part of it, is in fact against the uh, the commitment of the federal government. Uh, again, we certainly know the politics of it. Um, my point to you is, is this something that you just don't touch or is it something that needs to be a strategy that needs to be examined? I'm looking at a map of the Greenbelt right now, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of people aren't even aware of how how extensive it is. And it, it, when you think about it, it covers a huge, beautiful area of land. But it's actually a lot bigger than what the actual area is in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area from, say, Bowmanville all the way to Buffalo. Is that manageable? Is it something that, um, you know, what do we do now? Just start building on the other side of the green belt? How do we manage this end growth? Well, first of all, you have to remember that the green belt is protecting not only biodiversity in the natural environment, but also the farmlands. And we need, you know, we're especially during COVID, I thought we understood the importance of local production of food. So uh, destroying that is not going to help our situation. Uh, it will make us even more vulnerable than we are right now. The thing also is that people don't realize that we still have a lot of land within uh, boundaries of most of the municipalities. If I look at St. Catherine's, we have large lands that are still for sale for affordable housing that nobody, no developer wants to use. And the main reason is they are not going to make as much money as if they were going to uh, these places where they will be able to build not affordable uh, housing, but large housing so that uh, rich people can buy. 
Um, uh, I, I'm looking for solutions here, and I'm not hearing any other than we just we just don't build on the green belt. Is that your position? Is there any is there any wiggle room here? I guess is what I'm looking for. And, and again, I'm not uh, I'm not asking you to defend this. Obviously, it's a great idea, and, and we've done this for a reason. Um, but I'm just trying to find a solution here moving forward. But I I think the first step is for each municipality to look at what land do they have that is possible for an intensification, because that will reduce, by the way, a lot of the uh, need for additional services. So it's a question of cost uh, benefits, uh, and for especially for uh, communities. So first, that's the first, first step. What is there available for development? And there are a lot of places. It's just that, uh, yeah, developers don't want to look at it. But this is the first step. The uh, many developers step- that I've many developers that I've talked about said that that's short term, that that isn't won't last long if you're making a plan for say t- ten or twenty or or thirty years. That there needs to be more than that. There's not enough infield fill to to uh, sustain the growth that we're going to need. Yeah, but this is, as I said, it's a first step. The second step is to look at what land has been degraded that can be restored to be able to become a new housing system. And they may be at the edge of the, uh, the green belt because we have some of them already that can be, uh, you know, uh, places that have been completely abandoned that can probably work for that. That's the next step. Uh, and that the third, yes, probably, but at that point, you have to be careful where. The where means, uh, is it an ecosystem that is fragile, like never built, please, on a wetland? Because you know that all the people who will be living there will have two sump pumps working 24-7. Yeah. So there are some logics like that that needs to be put. The problem is we jump. We jump to the quick fix solution instead of thinking and planning sustainably first. Do we need to start planning for development on the other side of the green belt? Because once all of the area is filled, where do we go from there? So do we need to start planning what happens on the other side of this green belt? Uh, Yeah, most likely, like it is uh, in London, uh, in England, like it is uh, even, I should say, in Beijing, for example. Uh, So in many cases, yes, they realize that Okay, instead of having just a big center, an urban center, we may have to have a satellite urban, which, by the way, will probably be more sustainable in the long term than uh, trying to just add more in terms of uh, highways, uh, uh, new development that uh, our people will have to travel uh, two hours every morning and two hours every night to be able to tra- to work. It, it, and, and it's not mentally uh physically uh it's not healthy so where do you see the development on uh, north of the greenbelt do you see that expanding you know as i'm looking you know in the north it's up as far as lake simcoe uh east and west it's from oshawa to say um niagara area and such do you see places like dufferin wellington simcoe uh kawartha lakes peterborough those areas that are on the other side of the greenbelt expanding yeah, I, I would say that, uh, especially around Peterborough, Oshawa, uh, Kingston, for example, there are places there that uh, would be suitable to to uh, 
and and this is where you can start developing also uh, specific innovative centers uh, that bring a different economy because the problem is not just the housing it's a question also how do you keep an economy that will be sustainable and if you don't have it, it, it's not everybody that will continue to work in offices in downtown Toronto by the way that's mm-hmm. becoming less and less useful. In fact, a lot of people, uh, if you look at Germany, for example, they even pass a law that people make the decision if they want to work at home or if they want to work in the downtown of a city. Uh, so we are changing the way that we work. We're not in the 1950s anymore. So we have to start thinking differently in terms of our own lives and how we, d- and I should say the new generation, they don't want what we are currently having uh i think i think they still want homes though uh liette vasseur uh professor of biological sciences unesco chair in the community sustainability uh brock environmental sustainability research center at brock university fascinating discussion liette i'm sure we'll chat again thanks so much for your time be well thank you very much and bye You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Uh, You can hear him coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm trying to learn about the Green Bell. Uh, I think I I I own one. (laughs) I also have a brown one and a black one and I think maybe a couple others. Wow, you have a ton. You have way more than I do. I have like one, and you know, I had to punch an extra hole in that one because I got a little uh, heavy over the COVID, but I, I digress. So I'm looking at a map of this, and it's fascinating to see because I bet you most people haven't even looked at this. Um, but basically, the green belt goes along the GTHA from pretty much Bowmanville all the way around the lake to Buffalo. And uh, the coast, uh, the, the shoreline pretty much open with development, and you see where all of that is, and then area that hasn't been developed there's a little bit left along the northern boundaries of uh toronto peel halton whatever same thing with hamilton out towards um uh, the airport and towards that area um but then obviously butt right up against that is the green belt and it's quite extensive it's bigger than the actual populated area itself and my question to experts and of course i can't get an answer is so the message is here, we just don't touch the green belt, or uh, do we have to revisit the strategy considering where we are? Because it would appear that what we do next is just build on the boundaries that are north of the green belt, which would be uh, Waterloo, Wellington County, Dufferin, Simcoe, because this goes pretty much up to Lake Simcoe, uh, Kawartha Lakes area, Peterborough, and such. That's where sort of the next development goes on. But people still have to get from there to here so meaning driving through the green belt i'm not sure how this is going to work or what the expansion plan is other than all of the development stays within you know so many kilometers of the lake this is a discussion scott that has that we have had that i've had with other people that i'm sure you have had as well and and really it's this I understand those who say don't touch the green belt. I do. I I understand where they are coming from. I understand their passion for this. I understand all that stuff. Where is the solid, not the theoretical, not the um, out there. Where is the solid 
idea, the solid plan for what we are going to do with 500,000 new Canadians yeah. and yeah. with all that. So, uh, look, and I'm not against immigration by any stretch. Nope. Uh, we need immigrants. We need them to come in here into this country. Absolutely. But where is the plan beyond simply saying, don't touch the green belt and build on where we are? Fine, fine, but show, where's the plan? Because uh, you and I have talked about this. Every time, it seems, the plan exists to say, hey, let's densify somewhere in town. Let's build a new 20-story condo that allows- And there's not enough. There's not enough. You can see it right here on the map. There is not enough space left to- Okay, do some math. Do some math. And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to anyone, and I've done it, and I don't have it in front of me right now, though. If you were to say, if you have to get, let's say, what is it? We're going up by 230,000 people in Hamilton, they say, by the year 2050. So in the next 30 years, we're going to have another 230,000 people. Do a little math and figure out, okay, if we're only going to allow for three-story expanded buildings, we just want to, you know, we want to densify, but we don't want these big, tall buildings. Do you know how many 10 or 12 or 15 unit buildings we would have to build to handle 230,000 people? Hmm. It's impossible. We're already talking about hundreds of, say, 25-story buildings with 200 units or 300 units in it. Where th- this, is a, this is a situation that, I, again, I understand the desire yeah. to not go onto the green belt. But what is the answer then? Well, again, as you've said, so there's an imaginary line drawn around the northern section of the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, and you can't build beyond that. So you're slowly filling up that area, and then once you fill up that area, which we're very close to, then you're going to see supply and demand issues and prices go through the roof. So what happens beyond that? I don't think that's the discussion we're having. I, 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 I think that the discussion is still within this closed little space, and there's no chat of what happens once this space is filled. Well, I, I've I, you know since you started talking, I've pulled up the map here, and uh, what presumably could happen is, as I think you just alluded to, and if I'm looking at this, this should mean that, say, Kitchener, Waterloo, yeah. uh, Guelph, Cambridge, Brantford, Stratford, they should all triple, quadruple, or quintuple in size in the next yes. few years. Exactly. You, you, yeah. think, you think they're up for that? How, well, and, the wait, thing- and if that happens, how long till those cities are screaming at the province saying, how can we handle all these people? Yeah. And do they drive to and fro through the green belt, or are we just going to assume they're all going to have industry up there? Well, it's no, very odd. You, you would assume that you're going to have to have jobs mm. there then. Yeah. But look, I, I've got family that lives in Waterloo. I'm there with some regularity now. And I look at that, and I know they just built their LRT, and they're connecting Waterloo, all that stuff. But it's the same thing. Are they going to want to have a jungle mm-hmm. of 30-story condos any more than we want them? No. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and uh, feel free. As always, thanks so much, Scott. Much appreciated. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say the war in Ukraine may reach a critical point shortly for both sides by the beginning of the winter season. Mother Nature may be having the final say in this war. 